Welcome to Diet Culture Dropout. Are you ready to drop out of the $72 billion narrative that you've been sold? Diet culture sells us lies, unattainable beauty standards, the narrative that your body's inadequate, and dictates how you should define your health. It is pervasive, oppressive, and damaging to all areas of our health. By dropping out of diet culture, we can together celebrate all bodies, work towards dismantling weight stigma, and stop the transgenerational trauma of body shame and dieting. I'm your host, Athena Brown, a non-diet and body-inclusive registered dietitian, a certified intuitive eating counselor, yoga teacher, and a mom of two strong-willed daughters. My passion is helping people heal their relationship with their body and food so they can live a full life without restrictions, size limits, or food rules. I also desperately want to change the narrative for our kids so they can be the first generation that never diets, has resilience in our body-obsessed world, and a positive relationship with food. This podcast is a safe space for exploration, mindful moments, and take-home practices for anyone looking to find food peace and body liberation. Please remember that this is for educational purposes only and does not replace medical advice from your primary care provider, therapist, or registered dietitian. I am so happy you're here. I want you to know that wherever you are in your food and body peace journey, that there is room at this table for you. You are so worthy, just as you are right now. Welcome back to Die Culture Dropout. I hope everyone's doing well. Today is a rainy day in Ontario, but we will pray for sunshine coming hopefully soon. So today's guest is a pediatric dietitian, Roseanne Robinson. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to have this conversation with you. And on the podcast, we haven't really dipped into any picky eating or family eating behaviors or challenges like too extensively. So I was happy to bring on Roseanne to kind of explore this topic. So that's the topic for today is covert factors that contribute to food battles or kind of ideas or influences that are maybe outside of the box of our classic food battles. Classic, I guess, for us speaking as dietitians, but, and for most families. So before we begin, Can you tell us a little bit more about who you are, where you're located, and how you got into the work that you do, Roseanne? Awesome. I'm happy to do that. So like I said, my name is Roseanne Robinson, and I'm geographically located in a small, I like to call it blink and you'll miss it, rural town (laughs) outside of Waterloo, Ontario. And I live there with my spouse and two kids. So I have a 10-year-old boy and a seven-year-old girl. And as I was reflecting on this, I sort of I guess, stumbled into the world of pediatric nutrition, specifically as I completed a few rotations in my internship at a tertiary children's hospital in Hamilton, Ontario, for those who are locals, McMaster Children's. And I had some great dietitian mentors there. And I ended up covering, I think, similar to a lot of other dietitians as this field is, you know, really heavily centered um, with a lot of females. 
that I ended up covering a lot of maternity leaves and then really fell in love with supporting families around feeding and food. And I had the honor of working with families in the pediatric oncology unit for the longest period of time there before shifting into private which I started in 2016, where I now support families primarily around selective eating or picky eating and ARFID or avoidant restrictive food intake disorder and working with children with various neurodiversities. But I'm also very lucky to have two other dietitians on our pediatric nutrition team who specialize in allergies and digestive diseases, as well as other eating disorders. But it's super, it's super great to kind of have a bunch of us that have different areas of specialization. Yeah, of course. Help serve your clients better, right? From a client-centered care approach. Mm -hmm. Love it. Awesome. Thanks for that. So next one, if you can identify any privileges or identities you uphold, just so listeners are aware of the perspective this messaging is coming from. Yeah. So if you could see me, you would see a white female on a thin body, a cisgender. And in light of the conversation today, I think around kids and as I was thinking about this question is that, you know, I was privileged to be able to easily conceive and give birth to my children. And I also feel like I'm also very privileged to have both an adventurous eater and a learning eater or selective eater. And so from, uh, you know, the perspective of having my own children and and also helping other families feed children. I feel very privileged that I have this lived experience and not to the degree that other families necessarily have that I support, but I have a lived experience of, of the joys of feeding a child who enjoys food and all different kinds of food. And I think also the joys, but some of those hardships and, you know, in feeding a child who's maybe a little bit less adventurous. And so all of those things combined, you know, certainly are identities that I bring into my practice. Of course. Thank you for sharing. And you are also a dietitian. And how has diet culture came up for you more personally? I'm not sure if you have a more recent example of it rearing its sneaky little head in your life. Yeah, it's this was uh, there's lots of examples. I was like, which one do I share? So I have a young daughter and we're very similar, but also very different in, you know, who we are. And she has a very deep interest in clothes and fashion and styles. And that's not that I, you know, I enjoy going shopping, but maybe not with the same passion that she does. And so I was noticing that some of her interests were really starting to trigger me, especially as a dietitian who works with, you know, those who might struggle with body image that might come into some of the sessions that we have around, you know, food and feeding. It got me thinking, oh my, you know, my goodness, my daughter's interested in fashion. My daughter's interested in, in, in things like this. And I, I need to be really careful. You know, I, I need to, you know, cut these things off right away. And I found that the kind of my past in terms of, you know, my own history around food and feeding, and then, you know, some of this work that I do is kind of getting in the way of me actually really enjoying and loving and cherishing my daughter for who she is. And that these things don't necessarily, a love of fashion doesn't necessarily lead to body image, you know, concerns and how I can actually foster and cultivate, you know, some of her interests in a way that aren't heavily bathed in that diet culture kind of world. And and knowing that she's interested in these things, kind of how I can be more proactive around that. But I was just, yeah, I was just noticing how it kind of triggered me right away to say like, this is a big problem. Yeah. (laughs) And I can, can kind of overthink things, I think, almost sometimes, too, from like a dietitian perspective. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. 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 And just the mother bear's coming out. You want to be as protective as possible. And, yeah. 
you know, I think sometimes, especially when we're having conversations around diet culture and disordered eating and body image, all that stuff is we just want to like do the best we can for our kids. And I feel like sometimes building a resilient kid against that is, you know, having these exposures and tough chats and part of that, which is scary and uncomfortable. And yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for being vulnerable and sharing that. Yeah. All right. So today we are going to be talking about factors outside of the box or covert factors that contribute to these food battles at home. So can you start us off, Roseanne, with how you would describe a food battle for listeners? For sure. So I was actually thinking about this too, as I you know, haven't really had the chance to really think through this at the extent that I did kind of leading up to this. And I would categorize a food battle as a prolonged negative conflict between a caregiver and a child around food. And I wanted to really note that, you know, conflicts are going to arise. They're going to happen. Like there's no perfect food parenting situation where a child's never going to ask for something ever that, you know, you don't want to give them. Like a child will ask for, you know, licorice for two, two minutes before you're serving supper. And you're going to say, no, I mean, it's supper. We're going to eat supper because it's supper time now. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Like that's not a food battle. A food battle is where that conflict, you know, you say, you know, no, supper's on the table. Come, you come join us for supper. And then it it very easily turns into a a battle where it's, but I want that. No, you can't. And, and, and that really, you know, kind of spins and spirals so that it kind of gets out of control. So it's where those conflicts aren't easily resolved and they kind of morph into that stressful or negative feeding situation. So Mm -hmm. the other thing I was thinking about with this too, is that when we make eating about you know, parent versus child. So that, that kind of me versus you is, is really that definition of a food battle. And it's when the joy and connection of eating gets lost, Mm -hmm. right? So when we're kind of pitting one at one, each other up against, you know, one another, and that joy really kind of, yeah, gets, gets lost from the picture and and eating should, there should be a, our hope is that there is a joy component when it Mm -hmm. comes time to eating and connection at the table. Yeah. Oh, I love that definition. Great. So thinking about kind of the work you do, like what would be some of like the classic reasons parents and kids may enter into these, these battles? I know you mentioned, you know, more of the parents dictating to the kids what, what is up and what's happening, but what are some other kind of classic reasons that you find? Yeah. So a lot, there are a lot of reasons. And I was just trying to pull out some of the kind of top, top things that I would you know, work through with clients. And the first one being a caregiver's pressuring kids to take bites of food. And I find that that, well, you know, we can talk about there's, there's a whole, I always say that selective eating, if, if we're pressuring children to take bites, that probably has to do that our child is more of a selective eater, or what's all, you know, often referred to as a picky eater. And when it comes time to picking, as you know, it's like an iceberg, right? So we see picky eating above the surface, but it's, a whole massive iceberg below the water as to what might be contributing to that. And so, you know, there's certainly lots of reasons there, but, you know, a classic reason we see is caregivers pressuring to take bites. And so that's something that we want to pay attention to because that certainly can spiral very quickly into mealtime battles. Another one would be kids and parents bartering back and forth about bites. And so I, this was recently came up in a client situation and mom referred to the, you know, kiddo as the lawyer personality <laughs> or temperament, right? So if I take one bite of this strawberry, can I have five more minutes of screen time or, you know, one more show or whatever the, the reward might be for that? And it's, 
well, can you take two bites and I'll give you 10 minutes. And then there's this, you know, bartering back Mm -hmm. and forth and that can easily spiral into again, conflict and battles around food and and really steal the, the joy out of eating at the table from everyone. And just eating, eating to kind of please that parent or like just do yes. what they're saying, right? Where we're Absolutely. kind of encouraging them to like override their fullness just so you can meet mom's needs or like yes. what she thinks is best or mom, dad, parents, caregivers, what they think is best, right? We're kind of ignoring that. Yeah. Oh, you're full? Okay. Well, I still want you to do X, Y, Z type thing. And there's lots of studies too that, you know, that find that when parents pressure or use rewards to get kids, that especially a lot of literature in preschoolers, to eat their fruits or vegetables there. Yes, there's an immediate increase in intake because, you know, they will take a bite usually because that pressure is there, but it also has them being less likely to prefer those foods exactly. in the future. And so, yes, they take a bite, but what is that long-term, you know, consequence or repercussion of, of going about it in that way? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Some other ones are unrealistic expectations from parents around or caregivers around meal length. So, you know, you should, a child maybe should sit in their seat for an hour at a meal. Well, is that, is that a realistic amount of time for a child to sit? Or maybe an unrealistic expectation around the quantity of food that gets consumed at a meal, kind of like what we were just chatting about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, is it realistic to have a whole cup of of salad or a whole you know, serving of chicken or beef or whatever it is at the table, right? So just, yeah, having realistic expectations, unrealistic expectations certainly can contribute to those battles. And then there's a whole bunch of other kind of classic mealtime battles that happen when it's, you know, child not sitting on their chair, child throwing food, child saying, ew, yuck, that's gross. Or, you know, any, like there's honestly a laundry list of of many other reasons, right? Where, Where those battles can kind of enter in. And so, yeah, I think it's really a matter of then addressing these obviously in, in the right way. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good. And any tips on how like to navigate that a little bit more in terms of like those contexts for, for families? Yeah. One of my favorite one-liners that I give to all families when I, when I work with them is this phrase, be curious, not furious. So get curious around the behaviors or the comments or what you're seeing or hearing or experiencing at the table with your child. My other belief, and you know, I see this a lot from psychologists or psychotherapists as well, is that all behavior makes sense. Is it's a form of communication. It's mm-hmm. up to me you know, as the health professional or you know anyone else that it's on your team there to help you as the caregiver or parent figure out why that is. And I know it seems you know crazy to say, oh my goodness, Roseanne, like you can't tell me that food throwing makes sense. And it's like, actually, yes, it does make sense. It's likely because it's age related. And so that's developmentally an appropriate form of communication or potentially they're throwing food because they're getting attention. And really, even if it's negative attention, any attention, you know, for a child who maybe there's a new baby in the family and they're not getting as much attention. And so it does make sense, right? We may Mm -hmm. not be able to solve the problem right away, but it does make sense. And I think when it makes sense in that, there's understanding. Again, it can help us move from furious to curious, and it can help us kind of have more of a level-headedness when we go into these conversations. So, so yeah, so that's kind of the the starting context. And I think within that, so if we take up the, you know, the example of pressuring or bartering, obviously, you know, one of the things I, I focus on a lot with families is the need to remove the pressure. 
and create a new dynamic at the table. One that's, you know, you're welcome here. If you don't want to eat, that's okay. Just come and sit with us. Mm -hmm. Um, And really all of this, and I'm sure you've chatted about this on the podcast before is, you know, knowing your jobs and feeding and knowing your child's jobs with eating. So you as the parent, again, this is the Ellen Sater, you know, feeding framework, but knowing that your jobs are providing the what, when, and where of feeding. So what is, what is served when you're going to serve that meal and where that meal is served, and then allowing your child to do their job in eating, which is decide if they want to eat or how much of that food is there that they want to eat. Um, but then also using that, that framework as, you know, there's flexibility and there's nuances and there's, you know, within that framework. So understanding how to apply that and really taking that pressure off, knowing your jobs is incredibly helpful as a really solid, you know, starting, starting place for a lot of families around battles. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Good. No, that was a great overview. Thank you for that, Roseanne. Yeah. And really expectations too. just one last thing around what is normal. I think that's where there's a lot of kind of misnomers or (laughs) misconceptions around expectations for kids when it comes time to eating. And so just, again, like doing a little bit of research, you know, getting a bit of help, maybe from a professional, but understanding what are some of those age, the kind of expectations around. And again, I hate using the word normal because I don't, there really is no normal. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, what, what is uh, more realistic, I guess, when it comes time to some of these things that we're expecting our kids to do. Of course. And from like the adult perspective, we're just so good or so used to being able to eat and like, you know, make it as seamless as possible. Like we've, we've practiced for so many years, right? I think that's a point I love coming back to too, where like a two-year-old, a three-year-old, like that's, they're still so fresh on learning how to eat. And, you know, there's thousands of different foods and ways we like probably 50 ways we can make carrots. Right. So it's like every single time is this new, strange UFO experience for them. So if we can just be in a child's mind too, right. And they're that lack of prefrontal cortex, right. In the development, they they can't just get things like we do. So I find a lot of that parenting advice is like you said, every behavior is a way to communicate and just trying to think about it differently. I think a lot of us were raised where it was kind of like parents dictated what was up at the meals, right? And this kind of historical passed down way of how we eat and finish our plate. And just it's, it is really nuanced. I, I'm sure you find that in your practice where people are Absolutely. like, you got to let the kid decide that. Like they're just mind blown, right? Because it's, that's not that information that we're usually getting and intercepting for a lot of families. So absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Kind of went in a big circle there, but no, that's all right. <laughs> Great. So then looking beyond kind of the classic challenges that contribute to mealtime battles, what are maybe some battles or layers that could be coming up for the adults, the caregivers, the parents that are contributing to these mealtime battles? For sure. Before I dive into this, and I should have maybe said this earlier, I was just thinking about this Um there is no blame or shame when it comes time to anything that I'm talking about when it comes time to feeding kids and and parenting. It's my honest belief that we're always doing our best as parents with the information that we have at the moment we have it. And, you know, then navigating the next step when the next step has to happen, there's never, we're never seeking to do any of these things. So as I talk about some of these other kind of covert factors that might contribute to mealtimes, you know, from, from an adult or parent or caregiver, caregiver perspective, Please know that these are, if you're listening, like this is not about, you know, 
wagging fingers and, and pointing and blaming. It's simply highlighting some things, you know, that I've seen over the years in my practice that I've even, you know, myself had to work through, right. Or experience how, how those for my own, for myself and, and how I feed my kids might be coming, you know, interfering or coming into some of those bottles. And so, you know, please take this with lots of gentleness and, 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 and don't feel like you need to play that blame shame game because that's not, not helpful with any of this. Yes. Thank you um, for saying that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but one of the first ones we talk about in this section of the work we do together is caregivers relationship with food and their beliefs around food and nutrition. And so this is again, you know, a diet culture dropout podcast, but this is where our beliefs around food and diet culture really seep in. And I know there's a lot of quote unquote picky eating programs or, you know, out there that will look about selective eating, but completely miss the role of the caregiver or what, how our experience shapes, how we're doing feeding in the home. And so often where this pops up is, you know, having conversations with parents around my child only eats carbs. They're not getting any nutrition. There's empty carbs or, you know, junk food or processed food. And well, you know, I have a belief that, you know, all like it's great for kids to have all different kinds of foods. Those foods have a lot of nutrients in them. You know, carbohydrates have a ton of B vitamins and folate and they're enriched with iron. And it's trying just to retrain our brains too, that were brought up in the, I, I brought was grew up in the eighties and nineties and you know, what was going on in, in the culture then the low fat, and then it became low carb, and you know, all of these things, right. And, and what we were told around food. And I think a lot of parents have a lot of fear when they see their child preferring foods that might be more carbohydrate based or more processed. And so it's a matter of trying to understand what is that triggering for us as the caregiver and how is that then influencing what we're saying and how we're responding and how we're taking that next step. And so, yeah, there's like inventories I do with clients that I work with that help kind of ask some of those questions, open up some of those conversations because sometimes it's, we're not even aware of that. Right. And I'm sure you can speak to this too, that it's those, it's really covert, right? There's really kind of sneaky ways that those come in and they might be a little bit more prominent for some parents than others. Really evaluating that food and, you know, nutrition relationship for the caregiver is, is really important. Oh yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, yeah, I think that's that's great because how we're setting up those foods are talking about like our language that we're using. That's yes. that first understanding and experience kids have around these foods, right? That's a common question I ask is like, how was food in your house growing up? You know, what nutrition messages did you learn? We know that in the home kind of trumps a lot of the external environment. So looking into that, yeah, it's so key. Absolutely. Another one that we, that we look at is caregivers expectations. And I know I kind of alluded to that a little bit earlier, but like more expectations are around feeding their child. And I, I think normally these are based in very neuronormative expectations around what feeding is going to look like. Um, especially when your child doesn't necessarily fit the mold. I think there's like kind of this predefined mold out there or silo of, you know, this is normal and this is what your child should do at dinner time and this is what they should eat and they should eat this in their lunchbox at school and they should have this before they leave for school and these are what snack you know all of this stuff and they should all fit in this box and that's really influenced by societal factors you know around what those expectations are and to be honest kind of have this picture in my mind always of these the society expectations kind of as this big umbrella you know that's floating over top of parents heads 
and all of those expectations. It's, you know, it's silly things like, you know, your child has to get good grades and they have to be, you know, a top athlete and they need to be, you know, a, a top musician and they, <laughs> they need to, you know, have really good friends and they need to do this. And they, it's just all of these expectations and they just kind of, you know, they have to be a good eater and they have to, all of this stuff, they just hover over our head and they just weigh down on our shoulders as parents, just like dropping this ton of bricks of pressure on us. And that pressure then inadvertently without us meaning to falls down on our kids' shoulders, you mm -hmm. know, around how that comes across. And so it's really just understanding kind of even outside of the food and feeding sphere, it's our expectations in general. And again, does your child fit into that like mold? I mean, I would say that no one's child, you know, fits in that mold, like that yeah. mold is very unrealistic. And, and what do they need? And because I think a lot of the times, again, I refer to that Ellen Sater feeding framework as to what your jobs are and what your child's jobs are, but there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of gray that comes in. And I think understanding that in some situations, maybe you will make something that might be considered catering to your child in the classic sense, but it's you meeting them where they're at, at the stage of development, where they're at knowing that they have very few safe foods. Maybe they only like chicken fingers and French fries and Caesar salad. So you might include one of those foods at, at most meals until they expand their diet. And that's not, you know, that's, that's not being, that, that's totally healthy. That's totally fine. Right. And so it's understanding kind of, maybe I'm speaking too broadly here, but it's just, you know, understanding what your child needs and trying, you know, as much as possible to know when you're feeling those pressures that are falling down on your shoulders from society, what those pressures are, are they realistic or not? Are you trying to kind of mold your child into this silo, but what do they actually need and, and what are those expectations? So I think it's just having a bit more of a broader understanding of, of how those things influence you and then inadvertently influence kind of the, the interactions with your child around food and feeding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just taking like applying that to school, like how we teach kids, right? There's so many different types of learners and ways that we can accommodate kids. And, you know, one approach doesn't necessarily work for everyone. It's essentially yes. the same yeah. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Another one is caregivers parenting style. So we know that when it comes time to parenting, there's lots of different parenting styles and I'm not, you know, we can certainly have a whole other podcast probably when it comes time to this, but we know that the more authoritarian parenting style that is a little bit more, it's kind of also classically referred to as more like kind of dictator, like you need to do this or you have to finish this. That kind of parenting style can sometimes yield itself a little bit more to mealtime battles. And so sometimes it's even, and again, a little bit out of my sphere as a dietitian, but looking more so at the, the parent-child relationship, the parenting style that the parent's bringing to that, along with all, obviously the, the child's temperament, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but you know, what that parenting style is like and, and how we can kind of nurture that parenting style into a bit more of an authoritative model that's incredibly high on love and empathy and compassion and warmth, but also high on some of those boundaries that kids need in terms of, you know, helping them to thrive, you know, especially in the feeding environment. So yeah, looking into that and also the, the, the relationship between parent, if there, if it is a two parent household or even three or four parent household mm -hmm. and maybe, you know, different family styles that, how are different parenting styles either helping, you know, or not helping the situation when one parent is kind of pinned up against the other one? Uh, yes. If one parent's a bit, you know, quote unquote, easier <laughs> to get what they want from versus another, right? And trying to understand how that dynamic plays out. And so we do a lot of work with, you know, with families that it comes, you know, whether it's split families or 
you know, different family designs where we can kind of have those some sessions together, if at all possible to, you know, be able to talk through some of this to understand how everyone's kind of approach to this, you know, could either be helping or harming. Mm-hmm. Yep. Great. So that's the focus on kind of what the parents caregivers are bringing to these maybe mealtime battles. And then what about for the kids? Is there any other experiences or examples that are maybe unique for them that set this up to be a little bit more difficult for them? Absolutely. So we also look at child's kind of innate anxiety, personality, temperament. I I don't know about you, but I've, you know, there's been a lot of families I've supported recently where children have high anxiety. And maybe this is also an outcome of, you know, the pandemic. It could it could be a lot of factors at play, but there there is a lot more childhood anxiety that I'm seeing that's tied to feeding, you know, in food relationships, whether that anxiety is you know, from the child or anxiety because of, you know, interactions around food with, with caregivers or, you know, where that comes from, where that all comes from, but being able to kind of identify that and get some support for either the parent or the child around that can be really helpful. A child's sensory needs. So children all have different needs when it comes time to the sensory aspects of food and feeding, even as much as, you know, sitting on a chair, some children you know, really need good back support and feet rest so that they have that sensory input and other kids are fine eating on a bar stool without a, a foot rest or a back rest. So some kids just need a different setup, whether it's around their positioning or their, you know, you know, where they're sitting at the table, or maybe it's around the food and the different textures and maybe needing a little bit of help or work with, you know, learning to like different textures and consistencies of food. And sometimes it's the smell of the food or just listening to other people chew can be something that's really hard for kids, right? So it's identifying what those sensory needs are and making sure we can kind of help them out with those. Um, there's also traumatic food events from the past. So if a child has had a traumatic food event or really negative associations with the table, you know, I was working with a family a little while back where we ended up figuring out that this child who was very avoidant of the table was actually avoidant because he ended up sharing that it was the siblings, you know, the parents were quite stressed about the selective eating. And so these siblings started pressuring him and teasing him about being a picky eater. And so it was actually the fear of the siblings that was really, you know, preventing him from coming to the table. And so any kind of like traumatic experience, negative experiences, all that stuff can, you know, have a role. And so when we think about picky eating or food battles, you don't think, oh, sibling teasing is like Mm -hmm. part of the issue, right? But it's coming down, it's trying to funnel it down to the root cause. And so there's lots, you know, those are just a few, but there's lots of different things, you know, that can certainly be at play here for kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So how can we set these family meal times up for more connection, creating more like a safe as possible space for everyone to kind of enjoy? And like you said at the beginning, like focus on the connection and being, you know, with people at the table rather than focusing on the battles and being stressed with that. (laughs) Yeah. I would say it's really focusing on, um, you know, creating a space of safety at the table. So there's this concept, you know, called felt safety. And when a child feels safe, especially in relationship to feeding at the table, then they're going to be, you know, willing and able to come and you're going to have a more joyful eating and mealtime experience. And so if the table and the the kitchen and the broader, you know, kitchen environment has been fairly stressful is about how we can kind of dial back and how can we create a new narrative? when it comes time to that. And so for little, for little kiddos, it's just a matter of starting, you know, again, getting some help, you know, from a health professional, from a registered dietitian, but starting, just starting fresh, they don't necessarily need an explanation. 
no, we're just doing something different. That's all you need to say. And, and, and just start out fresh. If you have an older child, maybe you sit down with them and have a quick conversation and say, look, you know what we've been doing. It hasn't really been, you know, it hasn't really been fun. It hasn't been helpful for you. It hasn't been good for us. We're just looking to try something new. And you know what? We just want you to come to the table. It's okay. If you don't want to eat, that's fine. Just Mm -hmm. come and share about your day. There's always going to be one, at least one thing there that you've enjoyed or eaten before in the past. And we just really want to focus on having a little bit of time together. Our family's so busy. You know, we just want to come together for a little bit, come join us. There's no expectations and just trying to kind of set that new narrative. I think what, what, what I love about kids is that they're so forgiving. They're, they're, they're willing and able to try something new and just giving them that, you know, being able to admit and say, Hey, like, this is something we're trying and move forward from there, I think is just, yeah, a really great first starting place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just kind of like slowing down. I know a line that I always kind of feel like I'm repeating a lot is like less about like the food focus and more on connecting and sharing space. And I feel like as families and extracurriculars and all those pressures that you spoke about, you know, really, make family meals an eroding piece that's maybe not as important right so just kind of slowing down I know when my daughter started school we got no information from her so we started I think it was on TikTok I found the idea where it was your rose which is like your best part of your day your thorn your difficult and then your bud what you're looking forward to and it just calms the table down we're talking you know we're not focusing on how much everyone's eating and the kids now are the ones bringing it up. They look forward to that. Right. And just that reframe that this is family time connection, right. Changes it. And it's just itself. Then like, this is a task we got to do and blow over and move on to the next type thing too. I find it's helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. That's great. That's actually one activity that I have that we, that we do together. The that's, rose. That's great. The great that one. Fun. Yeah. It's it great. Is. Yeah. Great. When I heard it, I was like, wow, this is it's so easy they get it and like it's fun (laughs) but good all right so what would be some indicators that families maybe need a little bit more support so after they kind of try and make some adjustments themselves when do we kind of get some red flags or indicators that we need to kind of maybe seek some some support you know I always say that if you're at all feeling icky and that's the word I like to use if you're feeling (laughs) icky at all about anything related to how feeding is going, that to me is the best time to reach out for help. There's been so many times just on a personal note in my own parenting journey that things have felt icky and I've waited and waited and waited to reach out, you know, to get some support in whatever way that was. And, you know, kind of in hindsight, always wished, oh, like I really wish I would have reached out a little bit sooner. So if there's anything that's like, you know, sitting icky at all around anything that you're doing or you're feeling stuck or frustrated, that's the time to reach out you know, feeding is parenting. So you'll, you're going to feed your child close to 30,000 times before they leave home. And so <laughs> feeding really is parenting. Like so much of parenting is feeding. And so if it's stressful, like that's the time to reach out and to realize it's never too late. More specifically though, like concerns or worries around growth. Certainly if you're seeing meal skipping, any concerns around that there's significant, you know, shifting and, and, and food intake, that's absolutely a sign to reach out. If you're concerned about answer, getting adequate nutrients, or if you've had blood work done recently and showing that your child's like quite low in certain nutrients, certainly a time to reach out to a registered dietitian. And then other behaviors, like if the mealtime battles are so 
strong and you're starting to notice, yes, they're, they're, they're not coming to the table. They're skipping meals or there's food sneaking and they're kind of sneaking food and eating in their room or like any other stresses, right? Big stresses around food, definitely, you know, signs to absolutely reach out for some extra help. Great. Thanks. And in summary, is there anything else you want to leave listeners with knowing Roseanne? Yeah, I think really this conversation around mealtime battles, these battles come out of fear. If I had to boil it down, when parents do understand more about how feeding works, then they can trust their child and that fear subsides and then the battles disappear. Mm -hmm. And so really you know, if you feel like you have any, again, fear, you can use the word anxiety or whatever it is in there. Try to kind of label that, name that. Okay. I see that's there. Let's try to understand more, you know, about how this positive feeding relationship could work because then that fear will subside and you'll notice that that those battles absolutely will disappear and you'll enjoy those meal times again. Mm-hmm. Love it. Okay. So in closing, what would you say is the single most protective action someone can take to protect themselves from diet culture? Be open to learning about it. Um, if you're, maybe you're a first time listener here, I don't know, you know, if you're a first time listener and this is something new and, you know, to you is simply be open to learning about it, learning a new, a new vantage point. If, if you've not, you know, heard this vantage point before, and be willing to to learn about it from those with lived experience, you know, from experts, from all a whole bunch of different people, but just be open to kind of learning and absorbing, I think is like really important. Mm, love that one. Okay. And then what about for families, people that maybe have little kids in their lives, which is one way they can kind of protect them, shield them from diet culture. I think you alluded to this earlier, but realize what you discuss in the home is powerful I used to get very worried about the conversations that were happening in the school classroom or in different areas. And while yes, there's absolutely like take those opportunities to educate or to inform or invite others into conversation around how we can, you know, get remove diet culture from those conversations, but also everyone's in their, in a different stage of their journey. And that ultimately what, what we're discussing or what you're discussing in the home for your child is the most important. So one of the phrases that I like to talk about around this is in our family, we believe, or in our family, we value. So we can say, you know, your teacher today was talking about this, but you know, in our family, this is what we believe, or this is what we value. And that helps to kind of just realize, you know, help our kids realize too, that there are differences of opinions out there because we can, we can, we shouldn't really pretend that there aren't there. There's always going to be differences of mm-hmm. opinions out there, but in our family, you know, this is what we believe and this is what we value. And I think that's just really important to give them that, to give them those phrases so that they really can reflect on those when they, you know, hear these diet culture messages come up. Mm-hmm. I love that. Cause they're going to come up, right. We can't, like we said at the beginning, have them in this safe little bubble forever. So yeah. having that ability to see two sides of a, argument or a situation or whatever is, yeah, is part of building that resilience. Yes. Great. So where can listeners find you and learn more about your work? Oh, great. Yes. So I think I'm most active these days on Instagram, which is at blueprint.nutrition.kids. And then I also have a private Facebook group that's over on Facebook at Blueprint Nutrition RD. And then our website is blueprintnutrition.ca. So those are three different places that you can reach out, connect with me. I'm also happy to to get emails too. And my email is roseanne at blueprintnutrition.ca. 
Great. Awesome. And I will link all of those in the show notes for everyone. So thank you so much for your time and expertise today, Roseanne. And thank you for being here and sharing space on Diet Culture Dropout. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed listening to Diet Culture Dropout. If you like today's podcast, I would love for you to leave a review, share the episode with a friend, or subscribe. The more we can collectively break down diet culture, the closer we get to food peace and celebrating all bodies. Thanks for being here.